You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. This is our collect that comes, depending on which prayer book you use, from the second Sunday of Advent or from Proper 28. Let's pray. Blessed Lord, who hast caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant that we may in such wise hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and comfort of thy holy word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which thou hast given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Do you hear that phrase? inwardly digesting is my inspiration for my titles for the next four weeks. So I'll be in the Dean's class today and then throughout the rest of July. Next week we'll be looking at, um, we're going to start, we're very ambitious. We're going to get through four chapters of Romans this day, uh, today. So hold on to your hat and that's why I'm starting early. Um, and then next week we'll look at um, chapters five through seven. Our title for today is True Righteousness by Faith. And next week, we'll look at standing in grace today, what it means that we've been saved by grace today and in the future. And then in, um, on the 21st, we'll look at Romans 8 through 11, those chapters, and we'll talk about the mysterious love of God. And then our final class, we'll look at the last quarter of the book of Romans, Romans 12 through 16, a costly love for others. Well, to start out, um, it's important to start at the beginning and start not only at the beginning of the book, and, but in reading in those English uh, people who read, who first got to read Romans in their heart language, those first Eng- uh, Englishmen and women who got to read Romans in English usually did so through William Tyndale's tra- um, translation. His 1534 edition of his New Testament translation in the introduction to this letter, Paul's letter to the Romans, he wrote that it was meet that every Christian know Romans by heart uh, because it is pure gospel and a light to the rest of scripture. Um, He said it could not be read or studied too often or too well. And so I hope for you, if you feel like you know Romans, like I feel like I know Romans, and you say, yeah, yeah, oh, wonderful, oh, cute, Deborah's teaching on Romans, oh, I think I know everything about that book, but sure, I'll go. Um, Know that it cannot be read or studied too often or too well. Some of the greats had major conversions while they were reading and studying and marking and inwardly digesting Romans. Augustine, Martin Luther, John Wesley, Karl Barth, all had some kind of conversion while reading and studying this letter. Um, Augustine called it a clear light. Luther said he entered into paradise. Wesley found that blessed assurance all through reading Romans. My first engagement with Romans was probably when I was in elementary school as an eight, nine-year-old. We were sent to summer's best two weeks, which my siblings and I coined summer's worst two weeks, which it was a summer camp where you had to compete. It was a Christian summer camp where they divided everyone like sheep and goats into two different teams. You were either the Romans or the Galatians, and you had to fight each other and compete with each other for points. Talk about not being saved by grace. It was all performance-based, and you had to be athletic. Um, So I I kid you not, they made 10-year-olds 
take um, a test where they had to learn. I never even got to the point where I was eligible to take this test. If you wanted to get a certain level of points, which they marked off by different letters, if you wanted to get a big S, then you had to um, wear a long-sleeved uh, shirt and jeans over your bathing suit, and then you had to jump into the pool and take off the long-sleeved shirt and the pants, while, and so you're just in your bathing suit, blow them up, and use them as a flotation device all while you were treading water. Doesn't this sound like a certain level of hell? And for me, I'm, I'm, a, terrible, I'm a terrible swimmer, and so the fact that this was expected, or thought that we could even learn how to do this was terrifying. The one area of competition where I excelled was in memorizing Bible verses. That was the one way I could pitch in and gain some extra points for my team because I could memorize pretty easily. And so I worked my darndest at memorizing and a huge proportion of the memory verses came from this letter, Paul's letter to the Romans. So I memorized them when I was in elementary school, many, many of the verses that I'm going to be putting on these handouts over the next four weeks. I got to memorize as a child and um, and certainly they informed my faith over the years when I came to faith as a 12-year-old. Um, it was, you know, I had known this. It was in my bloodstream, so to speak. Um, but what I found is that this past year, I was teaching the women on Monday mornings from this letter, from the letter of Paul's letter to the Romans. It kind of came up in the cycle. We've been going chronologically through Paul's letters. And in teaching it and reading it and really digging into it, when you teach it, you learn it in a different way because you have to, um, you have, to have an output. You bring it back out and communicate it to other people. So it was such a blessing for me to get to study it more more depth than I've ever studied it, and then to teach it. So I have believed the veracity of what Paul says in the Romans, what the Lord says in the letter to the Romans for years, but I now love it after this past year of teaching it in a deeper way. So I want to encourage you, I think part of it was that memorization. This past year, I found that some of those Bible verses that I hadn't looked at for 20 years were still there, or not that I hadn't looked at them, but I hadn't tried to memorize them. They were still in my bloodstream from when I memorized them as an element elementary school child. So here's what I would encourage you to do. You're never too old to memorize scripture. So even if you think, no, Deborah, that's not me. I can't do that. I want to encourage you. You can. And I've tried to make it easy for you by giving you, if you take this handout home, I made it on heavier paper. Do you see that? So that you could you could just take your scissors and cut out a verse here and a verse there. You could clip it on your mirror. You could make flashcards if you really got serious about it. And that way you could, if you did them, especially if you did them in order, you would see the progression of Paul's thought and the progression of the communication of the gospel of our salvation. So I just want to encourage you with that. We're gonna, you can turn it over and look at those verses. Um, but let's keep going. I want to take, as you'll see on my um, handout, I'm looking now at the context. Whenever I approach a passage from scripture, I find it's helpful to be a little bit of a detective and ask those who, what, where, when, why, how questions. I usually ask them in a different order than that. So who, who is this letter from and who is it to? And you might say, Deborah, well, that's a really dumb question because we know that already. Well, the letter is from Paul and it's written to the Roman Christians who lived in Rome and in the areas around Rome who were both Jewish and Greek. 
And what we'll find about this composite picture of the church in Rome is that um, there was not a specific apostle that came to Rome and preached the gospel to them. They've already heard the gospel. We know from Acts chapter 2 that there were were some Jewish Romans who had been in Jerusalem in AD 30 at Pentecost when um, they heard Peter preach the gospel. And so there were some Roman Jews that were converted to Christianity then, and they probably took it back home with them when they were done visiting Jerusalem for the feast, and they spread it, proclaimed it there among the rest of the um, Jewish synagogue there in uh, Rome. So we know that there was a large Jewish population in Rome. We know that there was also tension between the Jewish Christians and the non-Christian Jews there in Rome. We find that from external historical sources. But what I would also say is that you see some tension um, together throughout the whole of the letter between Jew and Greek in the church. It seems as though though the church had been um, built upon these Jewish believers in Jesus who'd come back from Jerusalem at first Pentecost and spread the word, it seems as though now at this point when Paul is writing um, over 20 years later that there is a Gentile uh, weight in the church. The tip, the balance, the scales have been tipped and so now there's, there are more Gentile Christians than there are Jewish Christians and they might be poo-pooing the Jewish Christians. Well, why bother? What's the point of, um, of being a Jew anyway? Why did God even bother to have this first people of his own before making us his people? in Jesus Christ. So again, Paul to Jewish and Gentile Christians. Paul is writing when probably in early AD 57, and he's, we can zero it in that, that closely. A lot of letters, we can't get that, that close. We know he's writing from Corinth, the house of Gaius, and he's preparing at this time to go back to Jerusalem. He has um, proclaimed the gospel, and when you look at his missionary journeys in Acts, you'll see that Paul starts from Jerusalem, goes up to Antioch. He really starts from Antioch as his um, home base, and he goes out. Each missionary journey, he's going further afield because he has a special sense of call to preach the gospel in places where no one has ever heard the good news. And So he's going further and further afield. Here he is writing in Corinth, and he's expecting to go next to Rome. He wants to go next to Rome, and even beyond that, he wants the Romans to help him financially go even further afield, really, to Spain. Because the Romans already have heard the gospel, or some of them have heard the gospel, and there are now Christians preaching the gospel in Rome. So he doesn't feel the need to build on someone else's foundation. As he says elsewhere in the gospel, or in this letter, he says it later on in letter um, um, throughout in chapter 15 and also a little bit here in chapter 1. He doesn't feel the need to build upon the church there in Rome so much as to strengthen them, build a relationship with them, and allow them to fund not only financially but also to partner with him emotionally and spiritually in prayer for the furthering of the gospel further afield in Spain. So that's the why. That's the where. He's writing from Corinth, the house of Gaius. He plans to go back to Jerusalem um, with this big um, offering that he'd been gathering from all the churches that he'd already evangelized. He's going to go back to Jerusalem. That's his plan. And then from there, he plans to go on to Rome. Little did he know that he would be arrested in Jerusalem and that he would only go to Rome in chains, a prisoner for the gospel. And yet he would still get to preach the gospel there. 
So in AD 57, he doesn't know what will happen, but he is hoping to go and visit them. So the why of his writing, he wants to establish a relationship. He wants to introduce himself to the Romans in preparation for this visit that he's planned. Um, And he also intends to lay out the gospel to confirm what they should already know and believe. He's going to preach it again to them in case any of them misunderstood it the first time around and were swayed into belief or into um, joining the church for other reasons. So he's laying out the gospel. This is the pure gospel as Paul intends for them to hear it. And he also intends to introduce them to all of the Old Testament. For those Gentile believers in Jesus, they would have um, fewer, uh, uh, less of a grounding in the word as it was in the Hebrew scriptures. And so he's hoping to open the door for them um, to be able to understand all of the Old Testament in light of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. So what is the main message, one of the main messages throughout Paul's, gospel, uh, Paul's letter? And I keep saying Paul's gospel because some people have called it the gospel according to Paul, which is really cool to think about it that way. You know, we have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and yet Romans in particular sets forward um, the way Paul preached and taught the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. And we'll see in chapters 1 and 3 in particular that Paul's main message is that God has come down in the flesh in Jesus Christ and saved us, we who didn't have a hope on our own, who are without hope in the world, who have no way of saving ourselves. He has entered in in Jesus Christ and um, through his death on the cross specifically, he has justified us. He has made us righteous. And that idea of righteousness is something that is pervades the whole letter. He's going to summarize it in chapter 1, and then he's going to dig into it more in chapter 3, which we'll look at today. So he is talking in Romans about a new kind of righteousness, the righteousness of God and the righteousness of those who believe in Jesus Christ and are justified by faith through grace. So he's going to tell it in a certain way. He's going to start, and we're going to hear this today. He's going to tell it by saying the bad news first and then the good news. Um, He's going to say the bad news, he's going to say the good news, and then he's going to say the implication of what that good news will be for us. I always, whenever, you know, whenever you're, there's that old joke where the doctor says, I have bad news for you and I have good news. Um, I always want to hear the bad news first. (laughs) Leave me on a good note. Give me some hope. If we hear the good news and then we hear the bad news, we're left without any hope. Paul knows this. He is going to preach the bad news, and then he's going to preach the good news. And he uses a lot of classic uh, forms of argument and rhetoric in the way he teaches this. One of the ways in which he teaches this, and we'll see this in chapters one and two, is that Paul is going to put possible objections or questions in the mouth of an imagined critic who's listening He's pretending that he has this imaginary dialogue partner, and he's going ha- to say, well, is this what we should think? No. And then he'll have the person, the imaginary person, say again a few verses later, well, what about this? No. And he does this back and forth. It's called diatribe. And it's a great way of, um, of keeping people engaged in what he's saying. Um, so again, it's an imaginary dialogue with a student or opponent. Any thoughts or questions about the who, where, what, when, why, and how of Paul's letter to the Romans. Anything? Okay. I've given myself a lot, you know. Don't, don't interrupt our letter, keep going. Um, I, we're not going to read all of chapters 1 through 4 today, but I would encourage you to take your handout home and go through and read, um, read on your own. It's not too much to read chapters 1 through 4. I encourage you to do it in one sitting. 
because we don't always read it in one sitting. We often read a verse here and a verse there. But when you read it in one sitting, you get the big picture of what he's saying. And you also, um, you also get a sense for the co- cohesion of the argument. Um, it's, it can be powerful like that. And then you can parse it down and do one chapter at a time or one section at a time. Paul starts out in chapter 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. And he goes on and he says, To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul always, at the beginning of his letters, rightfully so, gives a little introduction. He's always going to start out just as you would write an email to so-and-so from so-and-so, right? Well, he does that. He starts out with the to and the from, and then, he, and then he continues on with greetings. And the greeting is almost always grace and peace. It's an amazing combination of the hello um, of the Jewish people and the hello of the Greek people. Um, shalom and karen. He's combining grace and peace together because he's speaking to an amalgamated people of God, people from two very different cultural backgrounds. He is speaking to both of them and he's tying together that greeting in a way he's altering it just a little bit and in light of the, in light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We can have no peace with God without his grace and there can be no peace among one, one another horizontally without God's grace being given to us. So grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He goes on, and in verses 8 through 15, he explains some of the who, where, what, when, and why that I was already saying. He wants to go see them, and so he's going to go see them. Uh, He wants to prepare in advance of his visit. He wants to prepare them. He wants to encourage them and have them encourage him. It's amazing in this little introduction, this is the longest intro um, to Paul's letters as we have them. Maybe there are some lost letters of Paul that we'll get to read in heaven. I hope so. Um, But the, the amount of times that he uses the word faith in these first verses from cha- uh, chapter 1 verses 1 through 17 um, is six times. It's, that's a high frequency. He f- frequently uses the word faith. He frequently uses the word gospel. And he frequently uses the word righteous. And those are three words that are used in Romans, um, a- again, at a high frequency when you look at all of Scripture. Um, so he's reiterating. He is going to tell them about what um, the good news is and how those are, um, who believe in Jesus Christ through faith are made righteous in God's eyes. So again, he ends his introduction with verses 16 and 17. So this is chapter 1, verses 16 through 17, and this is the first memory section that I have on the back of the sheet. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, The righteous shall live by faith. These two verses serve as a kind of theological summary of the whole letter. When you were taught how to write thesis papers in high school or college, you were told, you know, introduction, short introduction, then your thesis statement, you say what you're going to say throughout the rest of the paper, and then you prove it in the paper, and then you summarize it at the end saying, well, this is what I proved and said, right? You state it, you prove it, you state it again. Well, Paul here is stating the summary of his whole letter. He is talking here about this wonderful righteousness of God. What is the righteousness of God? Um, And this question is something that 
that Luther asked himself as he read Romans, um, in not only in the way his reading of Romans was life-changing for himself, but really life-changing for the whole of the Western church. Luther asked himself, does the righteousness of God equal that righteousness whereby God is righteous and deals righteously in punishing the unrighteous? Does God's righteousness of God equal wrath for the ungodly, for sinners? And it's true throughout Scripture that we see God's righteousness revealed in this way. This is called his justice or his distributive justice. Justice, remember, is the same word as righteousness, or um, just and righteous are the same word. And you have this idea of being um, right and righteous. God is right in that he punishes sinners and that there's a scale, a weighing of scales. And yet Luther is saying, no, the righteousness of God here doesn't mean just that. And throughout scripture, it also doesn't mean just that justice of God. Rather, in his exploration, he said the righteousness of God here equals that righteousness whereby through grace and sheer mercy, God justifies us by faith. This different view, this different meaning of that same word is shown all throughout the Old Testament. This kind of righteousness of God is understood to be an activity of God, um, a dynamic sense of his establishing rightness, his making those who are wrong right, establishing his truth. Um, The gospel manifests this saving activity of God in a very clear, unambiguous way, and yet we see it all throughout the Old Testament. Again, we hear in Isaiah 46, the Lord says, Listen to me, you stubborn of heart, you, are, you who are far from righteousness. I bring near my righteousness. It is not far, far off, and my salvation will not delay. I will put salvation in Zion for Israel, my glory. Again, there are both meanings there. This is hard. This is hard. This is confusing. But both the meaning of God's justice, um, his punishing of ungodly sinners, and the gap between our sinfulness and his holiness is present. You who are far from righteousness. You who are far from holiness. And then he's saying, I, in my righteousness, am going to bring you near. I, in my righteousness, am going to save the ungodly. My salvation will not delay. In my righteousness, I will save the unrighteous. Um, He says it again in Psalm, the Lord says in Psalm 143. um, Again, the psalmist is asking the Lord, Hear my prayer, O Lord. Give ear to my pleas for mercy. In your faithfulness, answer me. In your righteousness, answer me. Enter not into judgment with your servant, for no one living is righteous before you. I am unrighteous. God is righteous in just in punishing me for my unrighteousness. And yet his righteousness is also understood in light of his mercy. In your faithfulness, answer me. Save me in your righteousness. Deliver me out of my unrighteousness. So again, when righteousness is attributed to God, it has this meaning as well. It is God's righteousness in this sense, a saving, vindicating intervention of God. And the prophets throughout the Old Testament say that this will characterize the deliverance of God's people in the coming Messiah. This is what they were expecting, is that God would save them from their sins. And you see this in Ezekiel, Jeremiah 31. Um, God will put a new heart, um, give people a heart, his people a heart of flesh, 
flesh instead of a heart of stone. Not only that we would be forgiven of our past sins, but also in his tenderness and mercy, he would make us tender and mercy, uh, tender and merciful, that he would give to us a righteousness that we don't have on our own, even while he forgives us from our, um, from our natural unrighteousness. So again, going on, for Paul, as in the Old Testament, the righteousness of God here is a relational concept. It brings together um, the sense of his love. In his love, he is willing even to justify the ungodly. He brings people into a right relationship with himself and makes them righteous. And this is appropriated. We receive this. We say, I need this in confessing our sins. And then we appropriate it by faith. Um, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, um, given to everyone who believes, Jew and Greek. And then Paul here quotes from Habakkuk 2. The righteous shall live by faith. Again, we live by faith and not by sight. And he's going to take this all throughout. Uh, So this is his main point, um, that salvation does not come through our own ability to measure up to the holiness demanded in the law, but rather from God's righteousness in his desire to deliver sinners from their sinfulness. Um, So again, that puts the power in God's hands, that puts the initiation in God's hands. So Paul, now having summarized all of this, he's going to go on. He's going to go on in chapter 1, verses um, 18 through 32. He's going to go on to talk about the bad news. So he said his statement, if you didn't believe it, now he's going to prove it. In chapter 1, he's going to talk about about how disbelief in God's sovereignty and power, which is visible through all of creation, um, brings about, that disbelief brings about idolatry giving ourselves over to worshiping anything and anyone. And again, we don't go and burn incense at little gold statues that we find everywhere. But when we are anxious about something overly much, I don't know where we're going to be living in our next life yet, and we're moving in a little over a month. That kind of anxiety, if it derails my whole life, it shows that I believe that that is more important. Shelter is more important than the Lord God. And that's one where you would say, well, that feels really important, Deborah, and it is really important, and yet the Lord is the one who will provide that. Um, so we, when we find ourselves metaphorically burning incense, um, turning over in our mind again and again, well, what about this relationship? Well, what about my bank account? Well, what about how I look and appear in front of other people? All of that is a symptom, a sign of idolatry, that we're putting anything before God uh, in the way we trust, uh, the way we put in, um, uh, the way we trust in our provision, our protection, and our life, what we need for our life. So disbelief leads to idolatry. And Paul goes on to say in chapter 1, verses 18 through 23, that that idolatry leads into immorality. So again, he talks about how what can be seen, this is verse 19, what can be known about God is plain to anyone apart from the word of God because God has shown it to them in all of creation. All of creation displays his invisible attributes. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since creation of the world in the things that have been made. 
Um, so even those who don't have the word of God, who don't know Jesus Christ, are without excuse when they disbelieve in an all-powerful God who's loving um, and creative in his love. So again, this uh, disbelief leads to idolatry. Um, it claiming to be wise, people who disbelieve in God exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man. Um, that Im idolatry creeps in, and therefore God gives them up to immorality. Isn't it strange to think about sin and rampant sin as something that God allows us to get into? He allows us to walk into it, um, which makes me glad that he protects us at other times. Um, so maybe I'm not the worst I could be. Well, thank the Lord for that. That's because he's protected me and kept my feet from walking down that path. Um, for those who disbelieve in the one true God, there is this giving over to all kinds of immorality. And Paul goes on to describe um, how bad it can get when you don't believe in the one true God. There is an awful exchange, and then God gives them over. God allows those who don't believe in him to experience the logical consequences of their own sins. Um, and God gives them over to the lusts of their hearts, to impurity, is what he says in verse 24. God gives them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. We see here that immorality is a punishment in and of itself. And why? Why does God allow this to happen? except that he is trying to um, cause, bring about repentance and the humble worship of the one true God. He allows people to, oh, you want that? Okay, well, you can have that. Um, just like saying that there's a kind of parenting called love and logic. God is a very good love and logic parent to his people. Love and logic says, instead of trying to come up with all sorts of consequences for my child, for what they want to do or what they don't want to do, and trying to put that all on myself, I'm going to back away from the consequences and allow them to experience the consequences. A great example, my child wants gummy bears all the time. Well, I'm going to let her I'm going to let her have all the gummy bears. She's bothering me for gummy bears all the time. She can have all the gummy bears. She can eat as many gummy bears as she wants till she gets sick and she doesn't want any more gummy bears at all. You know, that allowing someone in the midst of their desire to go to the full length of it to begin to realize actually I don't think that's what I wanted. Actually, I think that probably wasn't a good idea. Um, it, back, it breaks down the love and logic idea. It works only with a flawless parent um, like God. Because I have seen many friends of mine who have their own anger issues. The idea is it takes your anger out of the situation who will say, um, oh, little boys who didn't clean up their toys now have to give all of their toys to the thrift store and all the children whose mommies shop at the thrift store will get really good deals on really awesome toys. I mean, I've had friends who say this with all the anger in their hearts because they're so frustrated that they have tripped over the Legos one, one more time. And so it doesn't work if there's a lot of anger. It only works because God, in his wrath, is unlike any other wrathful parent we have ever met. In his wrath, he is perfectly just. Um, he is not um, whimsical. He, he is not um, swayed by whim. He is not selfish. He is perfectly unselfish. His wrath is actually... Um, is so consistent with his justice. It's the response of his holiness to wickedness and rebellion. It is, um, his wrath is that principle of retribution which must operate in a moral universe. 
Um, Again, F.F. Bruce says that the execution of God's wrath is his strange work, the work to which he girds himself slowly and reluctantly. Um, Indeed, he sets forth the revelation of God's wrath here in Romans 1 as the background, the background to his proper work, the work of God's mercy, which is so congenial to God's character that he speeds with joyful haste to lavish it upon undeserving penitence. We can't hear and receive the good news until we hear and internalize and recognize the, need, the bad news and the truth of the bad news. So Paul starts out in Romans 1 by uh, going to, to the worst possible, imagine, worst possible sins. He just goes in, in um, verses 28 through 32. It's as though he said the worst possible thing and now he just opens the door up and describes what all of this sin could look like. These are filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Ouch. We can find ourselves in that list, each one of us. All are implicated in this disease of sin and death. All who are sinful and are also deserving of death. That's the bottom line at the end of chapter 1. And Paul is saying this. He's getting his Jewish hearers, his hypothetical Jewish hearer, to point the finger out out at all of the Gentile pagans. They're so bad. Yeah, they're so bad. That kind of rampant wickedness, it's so bad. And then in chapter 2, verse 1, Paul turns it back around on those who are judging. He says, Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We hear in this verse and in this passage in chapter 2 in the beginning of chapter 3, this implication, this application of Matthew chapter 7 and Jesus' words there. Judge not that you not be judged. Um, Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? We hear here in chapter 2 this hypothetical older brother in Jesus' parable of the prodigal son, the older brother who is unwilling that there be repentance and restoration in those who seem to have sinned egregiously. This idea that sin can only look like rampant wickedness and not like a quiet heart of rebellion against God. He, here, Paul is tapping into a Jewish conviction called covenantal gnomism, It was this idea that was present between the writing of the Old and New Testament that really gained traction among the Jewish people. It was this conviction that their corporate election, um, combined with a sincere intention to obey the law, was all that they needed for salvation. Well, God loves us. He wants the best for us. And we really might have done a bad thing, but he's not going to count it against us because he loves us. There's this... um, It sounds familiar, doesn't it? It sounds like um, it hits a little home for us. It is a willy-nilly attitude towards sin called antinomianism. It says, it doesn't matter what I do because God will grade me on a sliding scale. My good deeds will outweigh my bad. Or this idea, I meant well, God knows my heart. 
even though I did this terrible thing. Again, there's this sense, this deep sense of hypocrisy that Paul is seeking to expose. Paul here, um, again, is doing this as a way of bringing even those who think they are righteous in their own strength to repentance so that they can receive the true righteousness that comes from God's justifying activity in Jesus Christ. He goes on in chapter 2, verses 9 through 11, to point out that there is no partiality There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. He's not seeking to establish justification by works here at all. He's showing that if justification is by works, no one actually is righteous enough to attain to God in their own strength because no one has committed all the good, uh, the good deeds perfectly enough to be able to approach God at his judgment throne and be given the verdict of not guilty through their own deeds. God shows no partiality, no special treatment. All will perish, all will be judged. Um, there is only one who does the law, and that is Jesus Christ. So he goes on, chapter 2, verses 2 through 13. All have sinned and fall short. Um, that's coming later. Excuse me. All have sinned without the law, will perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. In other words, no one on their own, in their own strength, will be justified before God. Paul is seeking, again, to convict people of sin, both those who are, know they're unrighteous and, bo- and those who think they're righteous. If you've ever um, wondered about your own sin or you've been trying to evangelize a friend who doesn't believe they're sinful, it's a hard thing to do. You have to pray that God would convict them of their sin. But one of the ways to communicate about it is the way that Paul does right here, is to start far from them and then close the net in closer to them. So I start often by saying, well, what about the news? Everything is terrible, that outrage that Cameron was talking about in his sermon. You can't watch the news because it's so awful, the things that people do, and you see it again and again. It's brought to light in the news. It's terrible. The world is going to hell, is what we say when we watch the news. It's awful. So we can recognize evil and sin way far away and all those things that they, with a capital T, are doing in the world. Then you bring it a little closer well, what about in our neighborhood? In our own neighborhood, there are terrible things being done as well, and you can start to recognize that. That's local news. And then you bring it even a little bit closer. I always like to say if someone is not married, um, if it's your spouse, obviously it's your spouse. If you're not married, then I think a roommate is a great example of identifying selfishness in other people and sin in other people. Uh, That's easier to do when you're sharing the same bathroom and kitchen. He never, she always, why don't you, couldn't you just, all of those things identify our own sinful, or the other person's sinfulness. They are not the way they ought to be. They're not perfect, and they're so darn selfish. Um, And then you pull the net even closer. Well, don't they recognize also, they know how selfish I am. The people closest to us are able to see us as we really are in all of our selfishness, in all of our sinfulness, in all of our rebellion against God and our rejection of other people. 
then it's sobering. So again, you start further afield, you bring the net closer. And that is what Paul has done in showing us the problem, the problem of sin. Well, he's going to get on, I've got to get on because of the time, he's going to show us the solution. Right here in chapter 3, and forgive me for skipping ahead, in chapter 3, verse tw- um, 21 through 31, he's shown us the problem, he's shown us sin, he's shown us that the law cannot produce what it demands, for by works of the law no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. The law silences those of us who would seek to justify ourselves. Yes, but I really tried hard. Yes, but I uh, did this good thing, even though I did this bad thing. The word of the law crushes that sense of self-righteousness and pride. And then, as we are torn down in our own strength, torn down, our pride is broken down, here is the solution in chapter 3, verses 21 through 31. Luther, again, called this paragraph the chief point in the very central place of the epistle and of the whole gospel because it focuses on justification by faith. He believed that this article was vital. If this article stands, the church stands. If it falls, the church falls. And it begins with those words, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. Again, this is the righteousness of God, not just in his justness in punishing sinners, but also in his desire to save and deliver us from our sin by making us righteous through faith in Christ. This is the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Again, he's bringing forward that sense of um, no partiality. For there is no distinction For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Again, here about God's righteousness. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. Martin Lloyd-Jones says there are no more powerful words in the whole of scripture than these two words, but now, in verse 21. God's property of righteousness is manifested here through his salvation, through sending Jesus Christ to die for us. Here we have the cross as substitutionary atonement. And then we hear that word propitiation. Um, All are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Paul here uses three different um, kinds of language through three different terms that he uses. In verse 24, he uses the word justified and redemption. And then in verse 25, he uses the word propitiation. Of those three, we get both the law court and then the slave market and finally the temple. Three different areas, three different facets of what God has done for us through the cross of Jesus Christ. Justified means that we are um, declared righteous. We're not necessarily made righteous, that comes later. We're not necessarily treated as righteous, but we're not, we are declared righteous, like a judge declaring a sentence from his judge's seat with the gavel and the wig, if you're in Britain, and the robe. He is saying, not 
guilty. This is no legal fiction, but a legal reality of the utmost significance. To be justified means to be acquitted by God from all charges that could be brought against a person because of his or her sins. There is this verdict that is rendered today in the moment that a person believes. So there's there the language of the law court. Second, the language of, um, of being bought back. Redemption means being bought back. Um, this is the ransoming that happens um, for POWs, for slaves, for condemned criminals. The payment of Christ's death takes the place of that penalty for sins that is owed by all people to God. There is an exchange, just like the Redemption Center in Amherst, Massachusetts, where I used to go and bring back any bottles and cans and you get five cents um, back. Um, you were exchanging that aluminum for the five cents. And in Massachusetts, everyone is so frugal that you're really going to do it. You're really going to bring, it might be two months down the road, and you bring in a huge bag. Um, but there's something really satisfying about hearing all that change clink down in. You get all that m- money back. There is an exchange, Christ for us. He takes our penalty. We take all of the inheritance of what's his, the life, um, the joy, the peace, and the righteousness. And then finally, propitiation. This word propitiation um, in, in the Old Testament refers to the place where atonement was made in the temple, that mercy seat where wrath was appeased and guilt was cleansed through the blood of a sacrificial victim, um, where that atonement was made once a year on the day of atonement. And again, this idea of um, cleansing uh, brings about that forgiveness. So Paul here has... um, pressed into service the language of the law court, the slave market, and the temple to do justice to the fullness of God's gracious act in Christ. Pardon, liberation, atonement, all are made available to all by his free initiative, and they are appropriated by faith. Again, so all are invited. Those who believe get to actually receive. And we'll see in verse 6, this is God's true righteousness, that he establishes, he makes us righteous through his declaration and through his son. There at the cross, both of God's kinds of righteousness, that righteousness in punishing justly those who disobey, and also his righteousness in delivering the ungodly through um, justifying them. That happens right there at the cross. And that's why verse 26 is one of my favorite verses. Because God God in the cross himself is taking on the punishment for sin. He is um, checking the box, so to speak, atoning for the guilt. Um, The penalty has been paid, and he is also extending his mercy to the ungodly, to the undeserving. He is both just and the justifier through his death on the cross. He there is paying the penalty himself. Um, So I'm going to pause right there. I know we have like one more minute. Um, And all of chapter 4... So I just want to encourage you to go ahead and read chapter 4 yourself. Chapter 4 talks about faith and appropriating that belief in Jesus Christ, saying, um, I, God has given, I needed the gift, God has given the gift, I received the gift by faith, trusting in his grace and mercy for me, just like Father Abraham trusted so long ago. So let's pray and I'll let you go. Lord Jesus, we thank you and praise you for the truth of what it is that you have done for us. We thank you, Lord, for your cross.
We thank you, Lord, that there God's mercy is revealed to us once and for all. We see it all throughout Scripture, and yet there, without a doubt, you are shown to be who you are, one who is both just and merciful. And so we thank you, Lord, for upholding righteousness, upholding holiness, even while you also reach down and lift us up back into relationship with you. And so we ask, Lord, that you would give us the grace to walk, especially this week, in the light of your work on our behalf in Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us for one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.